Midday Takes to the Air on the Rural Radio Network. Glad to have you along today, even though the markets aren't along. We're giving you all kinds of information that you wouldn't normally get because we've had, uh, uh, of course, no markets to report. But we've had, uh, boy, lots of other valuable information to fill in all these gaps. And here's Susan Littlefield. That was a great interview with the governor here. Didn't you like that? That, yeah. was, that was only a portion of it. It was eight and a half minutes long in our discussion. So I'll be bringing up more of his talk of taxes and the effects on rural Nebraska coming up later this week. All right. Well, we'll look forward to that. And I can't help but point out the the color that has uh, now been uh, applied to Susan's cast. That's got to be Viking uh, purple. It it? is. It is Minnesota Viking purple. So I'll be wearing it for the next four weeks with pride. So commentary from the sports department on that? Well, that was a great win. Uh, it looked like the Vikings were going to pull their usual choke job in the playoffs. I know. <laughs> Just like the Chiefs like to. <laughs> you know, up 17 in the second half, no lead is safe. But that, that was a great football game. My watch showed what my heart rate was. <laughs> and I would concur at <laughs> that moment. The, the Fitbit was pitter-pattering. Oh, it was. It was going crazy. Uh, and then taking the knee. I guess they got Las Vegas all up in a roar because they didn't take that last extra point. Yeah, and that's something. And you know, it's the little things you <laughs> yeah. don't think about when people have money riding on that's a game. Right. You know, think yeah. you, people think when they lay a bet to the NFL, the NFL is supposed to live for you, Las Vegas. I was wondering if yesterday starts to finally start to even things out after the Vikings were uh, victimized by the hail mary pass from Roger Staubach <laughs> back in the seventies. Uh, oh yeah, in the playoffs, it broke their heart, but. That was, that was way back. That was pretty good stuff yesterday. That was right. amazing. Well, back to what's at hand here, and we're going to talk some ag here with Susan Littlefield. Well, coming up at 1219, the painted lady butterfly and what it means to soybeans. It, I assume that that is a very, very important Very positive. Role. We're going to talk with a UNL entomologist. Thanks to Chabella for that one. And NAFTA economy comes up at 1245, the recession, and more talk with Dr. Matt Roberts, an economist, and then... Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy, on what she sees the ethanol industry for this year and the outlook for trade when it comes to ethanol and DDGs. That'll be at 117. Look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Over here to sports we go with Jason Jorgensen. Husker man back at home tonight as they take on Illinois. They'll look to bounce back after they really let one get away on Friday night against Penn State, in which they rallied from 17 down. They had the lead and then... Couldn't finish in overtime. Also, big matchup coming for KU tonight. Jayhawks are on the road at second-ranked West Virginia. Of course, in recent times, Bill Self and his bunch, they've had a hard time winning there in Morgantown. We'll see if that trend continues tonight. And one trend that continues to look very good is recruiting for the Husker football team. They were able to nail down another transfer over the weekend, and hopefully he will be eligible and that he can play this upcoming year. That would be great. Thanks very much. And Bob Brogan on business. And as we honor the life and legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., financial markets are closed today. Meanwhile, Nebraska lawmakers get a little bit of a breathing space to uh, study uh, the budget uh, that uh, Governor Ricketts has put out and some of his suggestions. Also, uh, Cabela's hometown trying to move forward after the company sale. And uh, top car, truck, and utility vehicles to be announced at a Detroit auto show. All this and more coming up on your Monday edition of Midday on the Rural Radio Network. 
We've pulled Par- Perkins in here for a look at our ag weather. It's brought to you this morning by Kuhlman Repair. We were just kind of taking a peek around at some of these uh, weather cams that are out there. And I'll tell you what, that one at Ainsworth looks just like it was painted by someone who was trying to convey that message. Yeah, definitely chilly up there. they got snow on the ground. And right now in Ainsworth, 27 below wind chill, the coldest <laughs> in the area right now. Oh, my <laughs> heavens, you people. Yeah. I hope you stay, war- uh, stay warm because uh, we're not going to get any help from Mother Nature here for the next what, 24 hours or so? Exactly, yeah. To, maybe tomorrow afternoon things are starting to let up because we will see lighter winds. But for the time being, today and tonight into early tomorrow, looking at some breezy north winds. And right now that's giving us some wind chills in the 20s below zero across about the northern third of Nebraska. We're about 15 below to 25 below on the wind chills. About uh, we'll say right along I-80 and points to the north. And then as you head just to the south of I-80, those wind chills about 5 to 10 below in Nebraska. Single digits below zero on the wind chills in northern Kansas and just above zero on the wind chills in northeast Colorado. But, yeah, definitely bundle up today because the winds will be strong. And you can get frostbite in not too long of a time period with these strong wind chills. Right now, some light snow continuing to move southeast. Right now, it's over south-central and southeast Kansas, Great Men down in Wichita, then over that southeast corner of Kansas, and they've had accumulations there anywhere from one and a half to three inches of snow there. But otherwise, uh, some light snow also towards northeast Colorado, towards Yuma and Fort Morgan. But that will continue to dissipate as we see Canadian high pressure push in from the north today, giving us some sunshine, but those temperatures staying on the chilly side. Breezy north winds leading today to wind chills of 10 to 20 below. That's during the day. Then into tomorrow morning, 15 below to 30 below on the wind chills. And we do have a wind chill advisory in effect for much of the region that goes into effect this evening on into tomorrow morning. As that area of high pressure gets overhead tomorrow, we will see less wind, so it'll feel less chilly with some sunshine. A ridge of high pressure expands over the central plains during the mid to late week, and we will see a dramatic warm-up for Wednesday through Friday. Not going to last long. We're going to get rid of probably a lot of the snow for Wednesday into Friday. Then some replacement snow probably on the way for the weekend. The potential of a weekend winter storm. Forecast bundles in surprisingly good agreement showing we'll see strong low pressure intensify as it lifts northeast across the central plains. While it is days away from having considerable confidence in just how this pans out, the current forecast models do show a potent combo of accumulating snow and strong winds definitely a system that bears some watching. In our long-term forecast, there is a change from the previous forecast of milder temperatures. Nebraska and Kansas temperatures expected to be seasonal to colder than normal this weekend through January 28th. Late January highs in central Nebraska, usually in the upper 30s, and overnight lows usually average in the mid-teens. Our precipitation forecast painting an active weather period to end the month of January for Nebraska and Kansas. Expecting above-normal precipitation this weekend through the 28th. Looks like those better chances of above-normal precipitation are for Nebraska into this weekend. Nationally, another round of significant cold will impact the plains and Midwest early this week. A wintry mix expected for portions of central and southern Texas into the lower Mississippi Valley tonight and tomorrow. It's all thanks to this cold front that's pushing south. It moved through our area overnight. It will continue to plow south and reach the western Gulf Coast by tomorrow morning. Gusty northerly winds ushering in Arctic air behind the front. 
Temperatures about 15 to 30 degrees below what we usually see in the middle part of January. That air will spread south and east through Wednesday and weaken some in its coldness as it reaches the east coast. The Appalachians into the northern mid-Atlantic will see accumulating snow by late Wednesday morning. Expecting some moderate snowfall accumulations towards New England during the middle part of the week. There will be a warming trend for the northern plains in the midweek while temperatures across the west remain above average with the ridge of high pressure. Our next storm maker, a push of moisture expected to impact the west coast by late in the day Wednesday. That's a system that we will be watching for the weekend in our area. Regional Ag Weather presented by Coolman Repair. And Paul, you say that we have surprising agreement on how this one's going to come together, so pretty good confidence that we'll get something. Yeah, usually you don't see 50% chances of snow about seven days out, and we're already seeing that. So uh, things kind of pointing towards uh, maybe an active weekend. Right now, outlook is about one to four inches, uh, depending on where you're at with this system. But just bear some watching. We will have more updates as the week goes on, and they know more. Okay. And, of course, you want to stay with 880. Also, watch that smartphone. You can get on that KRVN app, powered by Harker Road Motors, to get forecasts, your current weather, radar for two dozen counties, and when you need weather anytime. KRVN.com. A possible solution to the ELD mandate may put some ag producers out of business. Planted wheat acres hit a century low while meat production is at an all-time high, and Kansas soybean producers have their first 100-bushel club member. That's all ahead on the Rural Radio Network. I'm Clay Patton. Ag producers and commodity haulers have a stay until March to become compliant with the electronic logging devices, or ELDs. So far, it appears that March will be the end of the moratorium, and and enforcement will occur. Drivers will then have an allotted 11 hours on the road between mandated 10-hour rest times. In the livestock industry, this may not be enough time for drivers to reach their destination due to poor weather or extended load times. The trucking industry solution may be to require two drivers on trips that may be pushing the allotted drive time hours. Warren Zinker, a feedlot owner in North Dakota who commonly buys cattle out of state, tells the Bismarck Tribune that, that two drivers will significantly raise the transportation rates and may put him out of business. Politicians and ag organizations are still working on a different solution to the ELD mandate for livestock and other ag commodity haulers. The 32.6 million acres of wheat reported in last week's USDA crop report was enough overestimates that wheat futures plummeted on Friday. But Dow Jones confirms that 32.6 million acres is also the lowest wheat acres planted since before World War I. 1909 was the last time the U.S. planted a smaller wheat crop at just over 29 million acres. 1981 still holds the record for the largest U.S. wheat plantings at nearly 88 million acres. While acres may have been cut back, the U.S. is still far ahead of its 1909 production capabilities. With ending stocks of nearly 989 million bushels, Rich Nelson, chief strategist for Allendale Incorporated, says there's no real resolution yet to our wheat oversupply problem. Global supplies are still at record highs, and foreign production in countries like Russia appear to be gearing up for another record year in 2018. A fun fact, the average price paid per bushel of wheat in 1909 was 99 cents. Inflated to today's currency rates means that 1909 wheat prices were about $2.40 a bushel.
While wheat acres reach lows, U.S. meat production is reaching an all-time high of nearly 100 million pounds of red meat and poultry production in 2017. Dean Meyer, a hog and cattle feeder near Rock Rapids, Iowa, believes the growth in the meat production comes from a hungry middle class that's demanding protein. In anticipation of another record year in 2018, Meyer is building an additional finishing hog barn and adding bunk space to his feedlot. Tyson and Sanderson Farms are also planning on new plants in 2018 to process even more meat that could push 2018 production up another 3.8%. The growing meat market is helping packers' profits, too, as Tyson reported in November that its earnings per share hit a record for fiscal year 2017, and Hormel Foods Corporation saw its largest profit margins ever in the company's history. The consumer is expected to benefit from the record production in 2018. The food price meat index for December 2017 was marginally lower than November 2017, but on the year that the food price meat index was down nearly 5%. Analysts expect this trend to continue into 2018. With consumers paying less and packers making more, are cattle producers able to take advantage of any of this? That's a mixed debate, but live cattle futures have gained 15% year-to-year, and feeder cattle futures have increased 20% year-to-year. Finally, Myers Farms in Rexford, Kansas, is the first Kansas farming operation to raise 100 bushel-plus soybeans. Myers Farm topped the statewide irrigated division in the annual Kansas Soybean Yield and Value Contest with a conventional tillage entry that averaged 100.67 bushels to the acre. Keep a straight row. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. To the delight of some and the dismay of others, the population of patented lady butterflies were very large this year. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. The caterpillar form of the butterfly is called a thistle caterpillar. The caterpillars do feed on a variety of plants, but the concern for many producers is the caterpillars were feeding on their soybeans. Julie Peterson, Nebraska Extension Entomologist Specialist, says in the summer of 2017, farmers began to see the thistle caterpillars in greater numbers. In most areas, they were able to scout and they were not above an economic threshold. During the reproductive stage, soybeans can actually withstand quite a bit of defoliation, up to 20% defoliation without it being above the economic threshold. So in most cases, farmers did not have to treat, but they certainly were paying attention by seeing these caterpillars feeding on leaves. Um, They also can kind of curl the leaves up and that can be something that farmers will notice. Peterson says there were several factors which caused the painted lady population to explode from the weather to natural cycles. They can uh, have sort of a larger populations and then the disease can help to control that population and then they might crash down to lower and then rebuild. So we do tend to see very natural ups and downs um, and we were definitely on a upswing and a higher upswing than we would typically see. Peterson explains more on how the diseases can cause a crash after such a bountiful year of butterflies. And sometimes when you have very large populations of the caterpillar, that helps to spread the disease. If that disease can spread very quickly, it's basically like an epidemic, and that can cause the population to decrease very suddenly because of this disease being able to be spread. So kind of a boom and bust cycle that's kind of regulated by this uh, disease. Peterson says the painted lady butterflies, like most migratory insects, will return to Nebraska and once again look to lay their eggs in soybeans. 
So they will be returning back uh, in the spring and summertime. So we will be seeing those adult painted lady butterflies flying back to our area here in, you know, as we get into the spring and summer of 2018. And those lady, uh, painted lady butterflies, they do look for a good place to lay their eggs. And soybean fields are one of those places that they might find uh, to lay their eggs. While the butterflies will lay their eggs on other plants, soybeans are the only large crops they will pick for the hatched caterpillars to eat. Peterson says keeping an eye on the caterpillars is always important, but doesn't advise spraying for them at the first sign of insects. That's one thing that's really important about the biology of soybeans is that, you know, they can withstand a lot of foliar feeding. So that's an important thing to know about the thistle caterpillar as well, is they do feed on the leaves. They don't feed on the pods or the flowers, the more important reproductive structures. You know, you could have 20% of your leaves completely eaten during the reproductive stage of soybean, and that's not going to affect your yield. There's a lot of feeding that can happen without it actually being necessary for the farmers to spray. You know, if they spray before they reach threshold, they're going to be, you know, expending money that they don't need to. They're going to be putting an insecticide out there that they don't need to, and that can, of course, be bad for our beneficial things, our lady beetles and lacewings. And then also, that could be increasing resistance. So, you know, we don't want to use our products um, more than we have to so that we can keep those pests continuing to be susceptible to those products for longer. So it's about stewardship of our insecticides. We've been talking with Nebraska entomologist Julie Peterson on the painted lady butterflies and how they could be big again in soybeans. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. You're listening to Midday on the Rural Radio Network. Yet it's time to check Midday Sports with Jason Jorgenden. Hey, thanks, Dirk. Well, it's the Vikings and the Jaguars moving on to the NFC and AFC title games next Sunday. Case Keenum heaved a 61-yard touchdown pass to Stephon Diggs on the game's final play to give the Vikings a memorable 29-24 win over the Saints in the final play of the game. And head coach Mike Zimmer talks about the play that will be discussed for a long time in the Twin Cities. First thing I did was I was saying get out of bounds. <laughs> and then I saw him run and I'm looking to see if he's going down, if he stepped out of bounds. And then I'm going back to look and see if we had any penalties or anything on it. And, um, and then the next thing I did was look the clock to see what how much time was left. So... Um, I don't know, some guys jumped on me. I don't remember exactly what happened. It was pandemonium, that's for sure. That play helped the Vikings win a game in which they had blown a 17-point second-half lead. The other game saw Leonard Fournette rush for 109 yards and three scores as the Jaguars surprised the Steelers 45-42. Former UNK defensive coordinator Todd Wash is the defensive coordinator for the Jaguars. Well, the news on the recruiting front continues to look good for Nebraska. Former Ole Miss defender Breon Dixon formally announced yesterday his intentions to enroll at Nebraska. The four-star defender out of high school held offers for more than 20 schools. He ended up at Ole Miss, played in a couple of games as a freshman, but NCAA violations resulted in a two-year bowl ban opening up the door for Dixon to look elsewhere. He can actually enroll and begin classes as early as Tuesday. The Huskers are hoping that he will be ruled eligible for this upcoming fall. The Nebraska men's basketball team hosts Illinois tonight. Now, the Huskers certainly let one slip away on the road on Friday night in overtime to Penn State. Forward Isaiah Roby, who's coming up one of the best games of his career, says the Huskers need to be ready to go early on in this one. I think everybody's a little bit frustrated just because, I mean, that was a big game for us, and we didn't really come out with that plan like it was that important. I don't think we had a slow start. 
we played really good to get back into it and go to overtime. But we're not we're not good enough, we're not a good enough team right now to come out slow and then still beat a team like Penn State. So tip off tonight between the Huskers and the Illini is set for eight o'clock Central Time in Lincoln. Also a big game tonight for tenth ranked Kansas. They're at second ranked West Virginia. In recent years, the Jayhawks have had all kinds of issues winning in Morgantown. And Venus Williams and U.S. Open champion Sloane Stevens made a quick early exit from the Australian Open. They're among eight American women who lost their matches on the opening day of this year's first Grand Slam. Two of the highest-ranked American men also lost an eight-seeded Jack Sock and 16-seeded John Isner. That's a look at sports. Stay tuned. More Midday is just ahead. You are listening to the Rural Radio Network. Sunny and cold today with a high near 8. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of around negative 8. Wind chill values between 15 and 24 below zero. For Tuesday, sunny with a high near 12. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Scott Foster. The Shelby teen has died after a hunting accident on Sunday. Approximately 5.30 p.m., Nance County Sheriff's deputies responded to a call of a hunting accident south of Genoa along the Loop River. The 13-year-old Shelby girl had been hunting with her father and two family friends when the black powder gun she was using accidentally discharged, striking her. She was pronounced dead at the Genoa Community Hospital. Nance County deputies and the Nebraska State Patrol investigated and determined that it was a tragic accident. Her name has not been released at this time. Governor Pete Ricketts has announced he will hold a town hall meeting in Lexington on Wednesday from noon to 1 o'clock at Kirk's Nebraska Land Restaurant. The governor invites the public to attend the town hall with lunch available for purchase at the event. His spokesman, Taylor Gage, described it as an opportunity to hear an update on how the state is growing and also to make your voice heard. With Congress gearing up to work on the $140 billion farm bill, there are concerns that nutrition programs could be targeted for cuts. Food programs such as Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, Women, Infant, and Children, known as WIC, and subsidized school lunches are a big part of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's budget. James Weil is the president of Food and Research Action Center. There seems to be a difference of opinion between House Speaker Ryan and Senate Majority Leader McConnell about whether they're going to do welfare reform, which Ryan wants to do and McConnell doesn't, which sets a tone and a path that would affect the farm bill as well. Weil says the recently passed tax bill is projected to mean a $1.5 trillion deficit in the federal budget over the next decade. He says some of the same Republicans who voted for the tax bill are now looking to cut social programs to help shrink the deficit the tax bill is creating. Weil points out SNAP and other federal assistance pro make up about 70% of the USDA budget. Authorities say a 39-year-old man died after a fire at a rural Boone County residence in eastern Nebraska. Fire trucks were sent to the scene outside St. Edward around 5.30 a.m. Friday. Firefighters kept the flames from escaping the house's basement. The man was found unresponsive in a basement bedroom. He was pronounced dead later at a hospital in Albion. His name has not been released. The Kansas Highway Patrol says a Florida man died after he was hit by a car as he walked along Interstate 70 near Salina. Patrol says 35-year-old Cody Nordland of Newport Ritchie, Florida died in the accident Sunday night. He was walking on an eastbound lane of interstate traffic in Saline County where he was struck by a vehicle. It was not immediately clear why Nordland was walking on the interstate. Our app is the perfect companion to your phone. Download it free at the App Store or on Google Play. From the KRVN News Center, I'm Scott Fall.
trade has been in the news now for quite some time, especially NAFTA, which has been in negotiations throughout last year. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. Dr. Matt Roberts, a commodities export, was at the Westco Producers Conference last week and explains why he doesn't think NAFTA will disappear. Markets become very worried. Agriculture becomes very worried when we hear from D.C. ideas that the U.S. may pull out of NAFTA, uh, that the U.S. may be fundamentally rethinking it. It's going to renegotiate. There certainly are concerns with NAFTA. But there is no serious economist who believes that agriculture has not been well served by NAFTA. What I've been telling growers over the past few months as more and more of this talk has come through, as more people have looked at it and really dug into it, the real question isn't as much will the White House withdraw from NAFTA, it's what happens if the White House withdraws. The Constitution is very clear. It gives Congress the sole authority to regulate trade with foreign nations. And so, though the President has the right to give notice of withdrawal, there's a very real constitutional question about whether or not he can actually do anything beyond that. While NAFTA will probably not go away, Roberts does say producers need to be prepared as a recession is on its way. He explains how recessions are unavoidable and cyclical. Every four to eight or nine years, we have a recession in this country. And right now, we're in the third longest economic expansion. I believe during the current uh, administration, we'll slip into a recession. That's not, that is no statement on the administration. I think regardless of who was elected in 2016, it would have happened just because it's time. I've been asked many times, what do I think is going to cause that recession? And I don't know. My guess is, if I have to guess, we will see the Federal Reserve become overzealous raising interest rates in the next 18 months. And that will damage consumer and business confidence. And that will create, whether a full-blown recession, maybe it's just a very soft recession of basically flat growth for a year. We had something very similar to this, I believe, in 1995-1996, uh, driven by an over-aggressive set of Fed raises. And I think that's the real danger. It's not clear where the imbalances are in the economy. Um, but then again, it rarely is in advance. Typically in agriculture, recessions aren't necessarily a really bad thing, says Roberts. Financing and interest rates will come down, but the question, he says, is what happens to food demand? Typically the parts of agriculture that are most impacted in recessions are cattle producers. And that is because it is the most premium of the meat products. We tend to see demand shift. People are eating less steak, more hamburger moving down that value chain, and that really adversely impacts the prices that animals get at auction. So the animal industry gets hurt a little more, crop industry gets hurt a little less. The problem is when it comes to how you manage for that risk, there's not a good way. The cattle cycle uh, that we talk about, we hear so much where prices go up, expansion, prices go down, contraction. There's n you can't manage against it optimally. The optimal thing to do is write it, but make sure when times are good, you're building equity in your farm, you're stashing cash away because you know they won't always be good. Be in a position to survive the next downturn. 
That's the best thing you can do on the animal side. We're already on the crop side in a recession. We're already seeing who made good financial decisions from 2006 to 2014 and who made bad ones. It's hard to change that a lot now, but it's the same ideas. If you're growing a crop, uh, you make money, stash it away. It's okay to pay taxes if it means you're building the equity in your business. And that's what farmers have to focus on. Well, there are some tough times ahead, Robert says it's not all doom and gloom. He often talks with young producers who are just getting into the agriculture business and says where their advantage is, is in energy and mental flexibility to learn. The world we live in, as frustrating as it can be surrounding people's food choices and all of the natural or what I like to call adjective-laden foods, vegan and keto and whatever, gluten-free, it creates a lot of value-added opportunities, and that is opportunities to create food with a story. We live in a world that is so wealthy, and particularly a country that is so wealthy, safe and abundant food is no longer enough. What people want is food from a particular farm. Go into a Five Guys, which is a national burger restaurant, and you'll see on a board the name of the farm that raised the potatoes. People love that. They love to know that the pork they're eating maybe is a, is a breed that is no longer actively used in commercial production. It's a heritage breed. So there's all these opportunities out there, but they require more energy because it means the farmer has to find their marketing channel. And it's not going to be traditional. It's not going to be just showing up and selling at a sale barn. It's going to mean working with maybe a restaurateur or directly with a food distributor. The opportunities to earn sometimes maybe 10, 20, 50 times per acre more than traditional grow crop production. We've been talking with economist Dr. Matt Roberts on some issues ag producers will be looking at in the coming year. With the Rural Radio Network, I'm Chabella Guzman. The USDA is sending extra financial help to farmers in seven states. Shaley Peters back with you as we take a check in ag news here on the Rural Radio Network. The U.S. Department of Agriculture will start sending additional money to row crop farmers in 14 counties throughout seven states who are enrolled in the Agricultural Risk Coverage Program. The move comes after the USDA reevaluated the program using a different method of determining county yields. Politico says the reevaluation was directed by a provision in the fiscal 2017 government spending measure, which authorized up to $5 million for a pilot project. North Dakota Senator John Hoven sponsored the pilot program and announced last week that USDA was putting it into place. The pilot program is intended to address farmers' reports of widespread differences in ARC subsidies from one county to the next due to the yield data the department uses when calculating payments. USDA uses the data obtained by the National Ag Statistics Service through survey responses. The problem is those survey responses have declined in recent years. When enough farmers in a county don't respond to the surveys, the department uses data from the Risk Management Agency and those two sets of data can be very different. The pilot program gives the USDA's Farm Service Agency state offices a larger role in ensuring accurate yield calculations, which should fix data differences between counties. Making planting decisions for next year's cropping system is one of the most important tasks facing farmers this time of year, and the 2018 Nebraska Sorghum Symposium that is held this upcoming Thursday at the Nebraska College of Technical Agriculture in Curtis, Nebraska, will help the process by providing 
timely and useful information to aid farmers in making informed production and management decisions for their operation. More on that can be found at RuralRadio.com. That's a quick check of your ag news. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. Talking with Emily Score, she is the CEO of Growth Energy based in Washington, D.C. And Emily, you know, it was a tough year for much of agriculture, but the ethanol industry seemed to be a shining star. What do you think? You know, I agree with your assessment. 2017 was a strong year for ethanol. Um, From a kind of political perspective, we won the big fights. We defeated several attempts to, to upend and change the renewable fuel standard, which is what guarantees us a bit of a competitive marketplace. And so that's a lot of that has to do with the hard work of the industry, the support of our congressional and our gubernatorial cha- champions, and also the support of the president and the administration. So we won big, big fights as an industry. We're producing, we're growing. When you look back at 2017, we're just getting the final export numbers. It will be a record year for ethanol exports, over a billion gallons, and we will beat the highest record, which was before. Before then, in 2011, so we end the year strong with with good political support. We will have fights ahead, but I'm proud of the industry and proud of what we achieved last year. Yeah, looking ahead to 2018, uh, you, you won a lot of battles in 2017, as you mentioned, but those fights certainly aren't over, are they? No, I mean this is. I, I think of this as a boxing match. We just it's the next round. So 2018 is the next round, and we got some very good clarity and finality to the conversation around point of obligation last year. EPA finally came out and said, nope, the obligated parties around RFS who is required to blend biofuel, that will stay the same. So that was a good victory for us, for our ability to grow demand for higher blends. But the, but the opponents are just coming at it with a new approach. So they're just n- new approach to the fight. Um, there's conversation uh, in Capitol Hill and in Washington, D.C. around, well, can we reform the RFS? And what do we do about the price of RINs? Can we cap that or control that in some way? So we're part of the conversation. We are making sure that any conversation must start with an appreciation that our industry has got to find, we must have a pathway toward growth. And if anyone comes to the table with an attempt to limit our ability to grow and remain competitive, well, that's going to be a non-starter for us in any type of conversation. Um, I mean, another big win in 2017 that gives us a lot of good momentum going into 2018, we doubled the number of retail gas stations selling E15. And so we're at over 1,200 retailers in 29 states, including cities like Dallas and Atlanta and Chicago. And this is a really good success for us as an industry, and so we will continue that momentum. A big hurdle for us for E15 market growth is summertime restrictions on the sales of E15 to legacy vehicles. So that's something that we're very attentive to in, uh, in Washington to get policy change so that all fuel with ethanol are simply treated the same as they should be. I know here in the uh, Iowa-Nebraska area, we see new stations coming out, new retailers offering E15 all the time. It's a slow growth, but it's, it's a steady growth nonetheless. It is. It's going to be a slow incremental growth, but you're right. It's a steady growth. And I would say to your listeners, go to getbiofuel.com, type in your zip code, and you'll be able to find a retailer near you where you can get E15 or E85. 
Comments there from Emily Score. Emily is the CEO of Growth Energy, based in Washington, D.C., and I'm Bruce Gorder on the Rural Radio Network. Shaley Peters joining you now here on the Rural Radio Network. Recently, Ted McKinney, Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Agricultural Affairs for the USDA, took the opportunity to address farmers and ranchers at the American Farm Bureau Federation's annual convention. He gave an update that, of course, started with one of the biggest topics in trade right now, NAFTA. NAFTA is the most important project we have right now. And that's not, an understate, that's not to undermine the value and the importance of China and Japan and markets that have been so incredibly important to us. But you are how you work with and take care and interface with your neighbors. And we all know that NAFTA has been outstanding. I don't know what happened to my button, but I too was wearing one of those fabulous buttons that says I like free trade or NAFTA and all that. And I am a believer. And I want you to know that I along with Secretary Purdue, have been strong advocates that say, let's don't blow up NAFTA. I like to say we have used whispers, when whispers are the best form of communicating. And we've used a megaphone with the volume on high. And some of my colleagues might have even found an opportunity to put a turbocharger on it. I remember as a kid that it was always fanciful to put a turbocharger on your tractor if you thought you needed a little extra juice for plowing and the other things that we did in those days. The point is, we've been voicing time and time again in every venue that opportunity presented itself to say NAFTA, and for that matter, Chorus. Even China are not ones to go blow up. But don't messing up NAFTA does not equal changes shouldn't be made. Changes must be made. I think many of us, I included, sort of wondered what the heck is going on when we heard that coming. But as you, as you dive into NAFTA and even Chorus and some others, you find that there are some things that need to be changed. I will continue to voice an opinion that says NAFTA need not be blown up. So I want you all to know that I think we can get there. I hope, just because the importance of the relationship, the importance of the friendship, the absolute criticality, criticality that there is more that binds us than separates us. But I'll also say Class 7 took U.S. farmers over the top. Class 7 milk did it in. It exposed something that shouldn't have been in existence even 25 years ago. So I'll not dictate to Canada how it does its negotiations. But it's time to land this ship and come to the table. Ted McKinney at USDA. This is the Rural Radio Network.